0: Welcome to the Advice and Insights Podcast with David L. Bonson.
1: Hello, and welcome to the inaugural issue of our Advice and Insights Podcast. Brand new approach to podcasting in 2018 from the Bonson Group. I'm David Bonson, the managing partner and founder of this little outfit. Those not familiar, the Bonson Group is a bicoastal wealth management firm. We running about $1.25 billion of client capital. Main office in Newport Beach, California. Satellite office in Manhattan, New York. Uh, That's where I'm recording here today. And we have been doing a little podcasting around our Dividend Cafe commentary for quite some time. Uh, It's a weekly writing we do at DividendCafe.com. Uh, pretty well-read weekly commentary, just sort of illustrating, reiterating what we see happening in capital markets and the major investment themes that are important to us. And we started kind of podcasting around that maybe a year ago. Well, this advice and insights podcast is meant to go beyond just kind of a weekly eight or 10 minute regurgitation of that dividend cafe Instead, we want to start doing a lot more meaty content here, a little more long-form podcasting, uh, just sharing a deeper level of insights, totally fresh material only available in this uh, podcast format. We'll certainly get other people involved. We want to do kind of some panel-type discussions, interview others. I want to bring in other partners and advisors and other people that are on my team that make up the bonson group we are a 15 employee operation and there's some incredible insights i want to bring from from others and so we're going to do some fun creative new unique types of things with this so that's the vision that's the goal and uh, this being kind of our initial issue and 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 addition so to speak of this podcast well what I want to do here for the next thirty minutes or so is talk about the state of the policy landscape and its kind of ramifications into investment markets. And by policy landscape, I definitely do mean the political policy landscape. I spent the day in Washington D.C. yesterday. Uh, attended a all day kind of policy symposium, if you will, um, with my partners at uh, Strategus Research. It's an outfit that uh, uh, provides significant amount of macro research and, and things of that nature that we at the Bonson Group use quite heavily just for our own information, for our own enlightenment, uh, to help sort of inform the investment decisions we make on behalf of clients. So they're a very well-respected independent uh, research boutique. And, and they did a conference yesterday in Washington, D.C. Very, uh, very well done, uh, incredible um, speakers and lineup of people to just sort of share various insights and investment implications on, on the world that we find ourselves in right now. And, and, you know, it's important because a lot of people believe, and I'm one of them, that the political environment was a major, if not the major story in 2017 in the news cycle, but a pretty low priority in the market cycle in terms of the biggest events that took place in capital markets in 2017, despite the robust year that it was in, in risk assets, despite the very dramatic year it was as a news year, Uh, particularly out of Washington, D.C., we don't really think that those things were um, at the top of the list of what was driving market activity. 2018 could very well be a very different story from both the monetary policy side and the central bankers of both our own country at the Federal Reserve and around the world. We think that there is very likely to be a bigger impact into capital markets from central banking, policy-making, decision-making, and those types of things in this year, and the, the fiscal policy side, the um, midterm elections, the actual things that are going to get done or not get done in, in terms of the uh, presidential uh, uh, agenda, and so forth. So I'm going to kind of recap some of that here in a bit, but basically I expect that the concept of investing money in 2018, devoid of a political outlook, devoid of an awareness of what's happening in the policy landscape is going to be a very bad idea. And and it, it works out well for me um, because I happen to be a political junkie and I say this a lot, but I want to kind of reiterate it. I don't... Um, I don't really, to be honest, uh, want to be a political junkie. I wish that there was a 12-step program I could go to to get this out of me. Um, But I can't. I've tried. I've done everything. It is what it is. It's who God made me. It's how I'm wired. And so to the extent that I live, eat, drink, sleep, breathe capital markets and absolutely um, love anything and everything I can. To get an edge in in my efforts as an investment manager, to have better information, and to have a more holistic understanding of the world around me, um, I think it is beneficial to the results that we create for clients. As for um, the, the particular environment we find ourselves in, and even in prior administrations and different paradigms. I really do think I do a good job at not letting what I want to be the case politically inform what is the case. That that there has to be a difference between investing for what you want to be and investing what is. And to the extent that it is human nature for an investor to say, I don't like the current president, therefore it's going to be really bad for everything, and that includes the things that affect my my investment portfolio, or I really do like the president and therefore everything that happens is going to end up being good, it is, of course, silly. It's pedestrian. It makes no sense. It's illogical. It's irrational. But it is hyper common. It's done all the time. So we have to work to not only avoid that in our own thinking and, and more subtle biases that may, that may play in even for professionals like, like us, but we also have to steer clients away from that same type of thinking. The reality is is that what happens in capital markets is very different than what one may expect out of a given political stimuli, stimuli. The, the, the political environment, doesn't match our preferences with uh, reality all the time. And it can be very humbling, it can be very frustrating, but it should not be surprising. So let's say somebody was a big opponent to President Trump, they didn't like him personally, they didn't like his uh, agenda, they didn't like what he had done in his first year. Um, it would be understandable, they might say, how did the stock market go up You know, so much since he's been elected I don't like them, and yet the market seems to be going up anyways. And let's use the president. Uh, Before President Trump, uh, Barack Obama was also a rather polarizing individual. Certainly President Trump is as well. This is a nonpartisan and bipartisan comment. And I had a significant amount of conservative, Republican clients of mine, friends of mine, often very astute, very uh, uh, intelligent people, that would come and say, look, we got to really peel back risk. We need to lower exposure to equities because this guy's dangerous. He's going to do all sorts of horrible things for the stock market. Um, and so, what, what do you say? And, and myself being uh, opposed to an awful lot of what President Obama might have uh, wanted to do from an agenda standpoint, I also had to maintain the objectivity to say, well, wait a second, is there more to the whole story here? Are we in a reversal or a bottoming, coming out of a bottoming of corporate profits that could lead to very robust market return throughout the Obama presidency years? That's exactly what did happen. Is there a sense in which sometimes um, what we think will be and what ought to be um, are different things, what, how things play out? Uh, In in the case of President Trump, um, I would argue that a lot of what took place in 2017 was apolitical in the markets, that we are cyclically in a period of earnings reacceleration, that we are in a period of global harmonization around that uh, dynamic of growing and accelerating profits, and that the overall uh, central bank environment is still highly accommodative even as our own Fed has modestly tightened. It's been very, very tepid. However, to say that President Trump deserves no credit for the market uh, uh, performance is silly. And it's it's far sillier, actually, than saying he deserves all the credit. Both are, are inaccurate statements. But, but when one looks at the deregulatory environment, when one looks at the... Uh, fact of corporate tax reform in the immediate um, accretive effort to bottom line earnings, it is absolutely no surprise that um, markets are higher in response to their after-tax profits standing to benefit somewhere between 10 and 20% immediately, not even counting the uh, impact of repatriation, the impact of of a territorial tax system for multinational companies, and not even uh, factoring in probably the biggest benefit of them all—the immediate expensing that clients will be able to, excuse me, that that uh, companies will be able to to take from their business investment capital expenditures. So all that to say, um, we spent a day yesterday with a group of speakers, panels, Q and A—just really fantastic. Um, uh, lineup, and I'm going to walk through some of the major takeaways and give you kind of our outlook on the state of the policy landscape, the drama around the White House, what it may mean to investors, and what it means in terms of portfolio thought, portfolio positioning, and just the overall uh, asset allocation process. The first speaker of the day, by the way, was a gentleman named Bruce Melman, uh, partner at a pretty significant lobbying firm in Washington, D.C., um, his own personal politics, not particularly relevant, uh, gathered he was kind of a center-right um, uh, establishment, socially moderate, maybe fiscally conservative kind of guy. But he did make clear they have six Republicans at their firm and six Democrats. So, uh, you know, as lobbyists, they're probably not as ideologically driven as they are, um, just more pragmatic. And, and, and so in that sense, I, I would like to think it would have been an objective way of the land about the current political environment. One thing he said that really rung true, very rarely do you have an environment where both sides are positive that they are winning. You usually have one side is winning and one side is not, and that's what we have right now. And then you have one side who's losing, aware of it and not happy about it and focusing on it. And you have one side who is winning, who's happy about it, aware of it, and then focused on how to maintain it. But right now... It is as close to the textbook definition, or shaping up to be as close to the textbook definition of a wave year as anything I've seen in my political observational years, and yet you have a Republican Party, or at least a lot of the spokespeople, including the the president himself, who appear to be in total denial about that. That this is shaping up in the midterms to be a substantial wave year, particularly as it applies to the House of Representatives, um, potentially even the Senate. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, it doesn't strike me. It, look, as, as Bruce Melman said, if this isn't a wave year, then I don't really know what a wave year is. Um, voter enthusiasm defines wave years. And the opposition to President Obama in 2010 was so much stronger, particularly out of the Obamacare legislation that was very unpopular, than, than the even the... Um, rather significantly high popularity of President Obama personally, and the fact he had just won in a pretty big way in the 2008 presidential election, those things weren't different. His popularity, the numbers by which he was personally elected, but the magnitude of the enthusiasm in opposition to President Obama was staggering in 2010. And right now, there can be no denial that the enthusiasm levels at the opposition are significantly higher than the core base of supporters for President Trump. You have very, very emphatic um, uh, supporters of President Trump. They make up a base uh, that he's had for quite some time, all the way to the very early parts of his campaign. Then there are less emphatic and, and less enthused supporters of President Trump, that uh, do make up uh, part of his voting block, probably will vote for him again, um, but are not nearly as enthusiastic, are the type uh, that are are kind of embarrassed at a lot of the tweets that maybe don't want to get out there and, and openly kind of promote him or defend him, but they still are mostly compatible with the agenda and uh, unwilling to kind of separate themselves from their vote for him. And, and so there's sort of a couple – and there's kind of different – you know, levels of all that as well, I think it's fair to say. Well, in terms of that 25, 30% enthusiasm block for President Trump, it's still there, but that opposition, uh, that it, that it, the enthusiasm that comes from being an opposition party is intrinsically um, high magnitude, uh, regardless of which party is the incumbent party in the White House. The Democratic enthusiasm is through the roof. Um, look, Ed Gillespie lost the governor race in Virginia. Not a big surprise. Uh, Virginia has certainly gone more and more purple and even blue in the last several years. But he actually gained the highest Republican vote ever that any Virginia governor has a uh, candidate has received and yet still lost by a wide margin. Okay, think about that. Largest Republican vote, um, but lost by a wide margin that can only be what? Uh, mathematically explained by what? Obviously, the Democratic turnout was massive. And, and that's just one state, one situation. You had five special elections last year where uh, the Republican did end up winning, and uh, all five of them, and if I'm wrong about that, it was at least four of the five, but in all cases won by a substantially lower margin than the district they're running in is traditionally upheld and particularly a much lower margin than what President Trump himself had won by just obviously one year ago. So there's a number of empirical reasons. Most of it all comes down to the approval rating. When you have a president who has an approval rating at 40%, 42%, uh, which is where President Obama was after the Obamacare vote, then usually it means the uh, incumbent party's in for a lot of trouble. The other party's going to pick up a lot of seats. Well, President Trump doesn't have that low of an approval rating. It's into the 30s, and there are some polls that show it a little higher. But he has spent the last year at the average approval rating, which is the lowest we've seen in the since this polling began modern era. Uh, obviously, a number of things could pick that higher, uh, bring that higher. There's plenty of things that could change between now and November. The only point I'm making is that this is shaping up to be a wave year. Um, and the pundits that we're speaking to are not so much wondering about the House. They're saying that's a foregone conclusion. The Democrats will pick up the House. For those paying attention, this week alone, both Ed Royce uh, con- longtime congressman in my own Orange County, California. He's in a more North County district, uh, so I haven't ever had the opportunity to vote for him directly because we're in a separate area, but I know him very well. He announced he will not be seeking reelection and then uh, Daryl Isa, who covers the very southernmost part of Orange County and it goes down into North San Diego County as well. And he uh, had a very tight re-election this last time, and prior cycles had won by a pretty large margin. He announced he also will be retiring. And you see that type of thing happening all over the country. In some cases, the retiring individual, whether it be House Representatives or the Senate, is retiring, and the uh, Democratic Party will end up winning that race. In some, they're retiring. There's a thoughtful succession plan in place, and um, the seat is so reliably red that the Republican replacement to the uh, incumbent will, will end up winning. But in most of the cases, the uh, individual announcing that they're not going to seek re-election is doing so seeing the writing on the wall that they're in for either a very contested race or a, a fatal uh, endeavor altogether. So um, from an investment standpoint, we would suggest that Uh, It will be baked into the cake that the House is going to flip, which has a big impact on a number of things for President Trump's agenda. But uh, even some of those that were more um, sure of themselves around that prediction are not yet willing to to throw in the towel on the Senate, um, largely because the numbers, it's roughly 10 seats that the Democrats are having to defend. And so there's less of a chance for Democrats to play offense But, uh, you know, with 51 current Republican Senate seats and 49 Democrat, you will note it was 52, 48, but Alabama already flipped. Um, And then the Democrats having to defend 10 seats. A year ago, myself and my colleagues were looking at uh, whether or not we were going to achieve 54, 55, maybe on an incredible uh, result, 57 Senate seats out of the, um, the 2018 election. And at this point, I would, if I had to place a bad, would say that the Republicans will lose the Senate. I certainly believe it's, it's going to be quite an effort to have to try to, to save it. And, and there's a lot on the line there because to the extent that uh, many believe divided government is best for markets, there's a lot of history on their side there. You have the obama Boehner split market. Markets did real well, even as government was in gridlock. You have the uh, Clinton-Gingrich split, where uh, much of the same dynamic existed in the 1990s. The Reagan and Tip O'Neill dynamic in the 1980s. So there's a lot of history here about gridlock. Now, some of these gridlocks were different than others because, frankly, there was a lot more bipartisanship. in both of those other examples um, that were a little older, the 80s and 90s, with Reagan and with Clinton, a little bit more got done even with that uh, partisan gridlock, so to speak. But um, if there were to be a uh, Democrat-controlled Senate, most pe- and yet President Trump or the White House, most believe that any legislative activity out of Capitol Hill would be uh, done and gone. And, and, and our, I guess the other option would be that President Trump himself would cross over and would have to kind of lean more to the left to get certain things done. That's a scenario that wouldn't necessarily please markets, even if it were true. And obviously, would have a pretty complex uh, political ramification. the The first year, the the Trump administration, from a from, from a market standpoint, we've talked about how well the stock market did. Uh, when he was first um, elected, bond yields did spike higher. There was belief that there'd be a lot of inflationary stimulus, um, whether it be. Uh, infrastructure spending, a lot of deficit spending, um, and not to mention just the, the tax cuts and things like that. Interest rates spent most of 2017 going lower, staying lower. They kind of flatlined at different parts of the year. Um, and so you didn't necessarily see this big inflationary dynamic get priced into bond markets last year. Um, you did see the dollar decline, and I think most of that's just related to the reality of what Central Bank had done and the way in which markets work, that they are forward-looking discounting mechanisms. And the thought was is that uh, the big move up in the dollar had already taken place, so the dollar went the other way last year. Well, um, what would have kind of politically lent itself? to the big-picture environment outside of actual legislation. We talk so much about deregulation and legislation. I think that a 33% turnover in the White House administration the staff, um, higher than presidents uh, Obama, Clinton, and Bush put together. Um, I think uh, that, that the fact that year two of a president generally has much higher turnover, even than year one. So the market doesn't necessarily believe that this is over, that there's going to still be even more volatility created. Um, I think that a lot of the, the challenges in getting some of the uh, cabinet appointments and high level uh, departmental appointments approved, a lot of this just being sort of obstructionist efforts from the Democrats. But the, the all things being equal, the market would love to see, regardless of what President Trump's tweeting, they'd like to see a bit more stability in the personnel and in the agenda driving. Um, I don't believe that the media feud has been difficult for markets or difficult for President Trump. I actually think he's winning that one. I think he's winning it handily. Uh, the base loves it. They don't view it. When he says something kind of silly or immature, the, view, the base doesn't see that. I think the bulk of the country, as a matter of fact, sees it more in the context of an anti-political correctness um, situation. And so so there is such a a warmth around opposing political correctness that I think it has uh, enabled President Trump to mostly win those little battles with the media. And I don't think that the market really cares one way or the other. Um, there is an anti-tech vibe that is picking up here in the country. Bruce Melman talked about that a little bit. It's a huge theme of the Bonson Group this year, um, that we kind of think a lot of new tech or cool tech, think of e-com, social media, cloud-based, uh, obviously your apples and the phone dynamic. We think that they've largely had a free ride so far that there has not been a lot of political opposition or pushback for what they've kind of been doing. And you saw the uh, energy sector get into the crossfire of politicos back in the 1980s. You saw um, the financial sector fall into it, and obviously that went crazy during the financial crisis. But those have been kind of favored sectors to hate over the years. Right now, I do believe that I don't I wouldn't say Trump's tweet war with Jeff Bezos at Amazon, but I think that the press, I think that sometimes the center left press, I think sometimes the far left press, not to mention just the societal or cultural undertone, is right now very skeptical of Silicon Valley. They're skeptical of um, some of the things, whether they believe that there's monopolistic advantages that an Amazon has whether they don't appreciate the privacy uh, situation that goes on within Google ad making or Facebook, whether they're worried about Facebook's, um, uh, you know, sharing of information or not to mention um, helping to facilitate certain political outcomes that, that people don't believe that they should. So there's, there's definitely a lot more pushback, uh, you know, around Facebook and Some of these other names, it's going to be a big story in 2018. Um, So what's that mean? Uh, What what if the Democrats do win the House but don't win the Senate? Um, Well, according to Bruce Melman yesterday, and I would say that this is certainly very much in line with my view, I think if the Democrats win the House, they're going to impeach President Trump. Um, I think it's a foregone conclusion. But then as far as actual removal, I would say it has almost no chance whatsoever. Uh, requiring that high threshold, even if they pick up the Senate, they're not going to pick up the majority. They would need a super majority to actually move them from office. So it'll be a charade. It'll be a spectacle. It'll be a news event. Uh, depending on what's going on in the real news world, um, it may or may not have some legs to it, but more than likely it to be a big exercise in gamesmanship, and uh, could create some volatility here and there. I don't think markets necessarily like any of this talk. But um, as far as the total underlying substance of it, very unlikely anything will come out of it. Um, <clears throat> I did actually ask him myself if he thought the filibuster was at risk. And, and frankly, um, it, the, he, he surprised me. He does not believe that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will pull out the filibuster card this year. I suspected he would. He uh, doesn't believe that the Democrats will use it in 2019, even if they pick up the Senate, because if you think about it, President Trump would still be in the White House. Why pull that card now when they have no benefit from it? Because anything they do filibuster is obviously just going to get vetoed. So yes, I think the filibuster is gone but no, I don't think it's going to be gone this year or even next year, uh, depending on what happens in the, in the midterms. More than likely, it would be when there is a uh, president in the White House who is of the same party as the side that wants to filibuster, that that's when it would actually go forward. So that would be interesting. Grover Norquist from the Americans for Tax Reform uh, spoke yesterday. Uh, a couple of things I was sort of unaware of that I wish I had, I mean, I understood but didn't quite appreciate the magnitude. 6.6 million people have been paying the penalty for not having Obamacare. 6.6 million. And yet, um, by getting rid of that individual mandate in the tax bill, that money is not really being factored in and how much stimulus is coming back into the economy. We do believe that those people will likely spend the money more uh, efficiently than than it's being presently spent. So, from our vantage point, it's not just the right thing to do for this young man, um, young for the young men and women. uh, You know, from a social standpoint, uh, economic standpoint, freedom. I actually do think that it's going to have a stimulative effect on the economy. The state legislators are going to be an interesting dynamic next year um, because you could very well see on a national level a big turnover in the congressional races, and uh, we talked about Senate, but then you could see a lot of the state dynamics stay the same, and I think that's where there's much more community connectivity, a lot less of a national narrative and more of local dynamics that play in, and so the state and local politics being able to sort of bifurcate from the national politics could prove to be a very advantageous thing if it plays out that way. There's historical precedents on both sides, but on the Supreme Court side, um, you know, they're taking up this case of Janus. Uh, we those who know the Rebecca Friedrichs case in California, you had a teacher, member of teachers' union, sue regarding the unconstitutionality of mandatory union dues. You now have this Janus case out of Illinois. For a similar uh, situation, although it's not from a, a teacher's union, but the precepts behind it are all the same. And I do believe that um, that the Supreme Court is going to rule by a five to four vote that mandatory union dues are unconstitutional and that they have to go to a um, opt in system that would that would allow, uh, employees to participate in their local union only if they opted to do so that the default position was not um, that they were automatically in and that they were paying dues that could go to political causes they didn't necessarily agree with so that a big Supreme Court case uh, that will come up here probably in the June timeframe we're going to be watching very closely um, Another thing that I really had not been paying enough attention to, I'm going to now, because this is direct in the line of fire for investors. And when I say line of fire, I guess that sort of sounds like there's sort of a negativity around it. But in this case, it could be overwhelmingly positive. I mean, big deal stuff if it gets through. There's a movement to redefine basis, cost basis, when one is evaluating what capital gains should be on a sold or liquidated asset. That right now it just is original purchase price but to supplement original purchase price with inflation when determining the original cost basis uh, there are some lobbying efforts behind it there's some pretty compelling legal arguments to be made and if that were to happen we think there'd be a lot more room for capital gain realizations um, it would certainly produce higher after-tax profits for those that have held uh, profitable investments for a long period of time, where inflation's had a long opportunity to compound, um, and and so it, it it bears watching what the legislative effort is to get that interpretation um, regarding uh, uh, the definition of cost basis out of the Treasury Department. Um, There was a whole panel on the whole investigation, Robert Mueller, FBI, Russia. I'm not going to get too much into a lot of that right now. I think everyone's sort of on the same page Uh, that, you know, there could be some real market volatility if there ends up being a kind of unexpected, you know, case development that rocks the markets. There doesn't appear to most market actors right now to be the threat of a big, uh, Uh, announcement regarding collusion coming Um, but again nobody knows and I guess that's the real takeaway is anyone who says they know doesn't know Um, the chief policy officer of the US Chamber of Commerce Neil Bradley spoke for a bit Uh, we're you know obviously right now in the midst of what's happening and playing out with DACA uh, the uh, immigration the wall funding things like that so there's still quite a bit of volatility around the whole subject of immigration and the wall. Um, a couple of question marks up in the air. We don't really know what's going to happen with the medical device tax. It was part of the Obama- Obamacare bill. It's been punted almost every year since. Uh, even Elizabeth Warren opposes it, but they probably don't have the votes to get rid of it altogether. Um, and to the extent that some Democratic support would be necessary, they're not uh, uh, interested in doing the president any favors whatsoever. Um, I did talk to him a bit about a bipartisan infrastructure bill. I get scared sometimes when I hear those terms because generally they've been boondoggles for crony capitalism in the past and not necessarily the most stimulative uh, projects. I don't think history has smiled well on spending money for no reason, but to the degree that the Keynesians in our mix want to see some of this government spending to offside one side of the debt fiasco. Um I'm I'm you know I don't know. Um at the end of the day uh I believe that if it really is done in private partnership and there really are return on investment targets they could probably get more leverage out of the infrastructure bill and it could probably be more efficient use of capital but um there has not been a lot of precedent for effective infrastructure, you know, massive, big governmental spending programs. Um, but if there are legitimate needs um, that can focus on a, a valid ROI, not a quick project, um, I think I think it could be uh, useful. Um, you know, we've talked at the Bonson Group about midstream pipeline development. You know, we're in need of much more there in terms of our... Uh, you know, shoring up our ability to export liquefied natural gas and just shoring up our ability to move oil and gas around our own country um, because we're so heavily dependent on rail and trucking. So we know that things like pipeline construction is stimulative and that there could be some sort of endeavor around that. But but even a lot of airport rebuilding, port dredging, these are things that that will take a long time to do. Uh, They're not in that shovel-ready, Keynesian kind of context, but probably would be um, very useful. Uh, So we'll see what plays out with infrastructure. It also could be a big political victory for President Trump. Steve Bannon was the speaker at lunchtime yesterday. There wasn't a whole lot to say about markets. He, He delved quite a bit into his view of the world. He was speaking to us about two hours before... His ter- removal from Breitbart was announced. Um, he's obviously had a high turmoil week in terms of his dynamic with the president, uh, who has sort of turned on him in lieu of a lot of the leaking and, and kind of derogatory things that Steve Bannon said to this reporter in this new book. And uh, the, I, I would imagine there's not going to be any repair of the Bannon-Trump relationship anytime soon. Well, um I guess if this is anything market-relevant, uh, it would be positive because I do think that one of the things a lot of people have said <clears throat> is, okay, fine, President Trump's deregulating a lot of things, he's removing a lot of impediment for businesses to grow, and President Trump is um, is cutting taxes, and that's going to be, uh, uh, you know, additive to the bottom line, but He's threatening a trade war. He wants to pull us out of NAFTA. There's a lot of these protectionist impulses, and that could just be you know, really derogatory for uh, market climate. It could be just catastrophic. So it's hard to get overly bullish when you have the overhang of this anti-globalization and, and very pro-protectionism um, uh, and isolationism and economic nationalism and and I think that Steve Bannon believes in these things from the bottom of his heart. I think he is also sincerely wrong in most of them. But the reason I say it could be net beneficial to markets that Bannon is no longer apparently in Trump's orbit, even as an influence, he's been out of his uh, White House in an official st- strategist role since August. But because I think Bannon is one of the leading in has been one of the big influences to President Trump um, with a lot of these protectionist impulses. I think markets probably can breathe a little bit deeper sigh, knowing that that Steve Bannon is not there whispering in Trump's ear right now. Um, So the only other, I guess, anecdotal thing I'll share on the Steve Bannon talk was someone did ask him his thought on Bitcoin. Bannon being such a sort of populist and uh, anti-establishment guy that my assumption, and I'm sure everyone else's, was that he'd be a big pro-Bitcoiner and and he actually came out quite the opposite, just said he thinks it's a big joke and that the only reason that Bitcoin is useful is that it demonstrates so clearly how much legal money laundering is still going on and believes it exposes a certain amount of criminality in certain rogue states that uh, is still being enabled. So I thought it, that part was interesting. Um Donna Brazil, who was the chair of the Democratic National Committee, Al Gore's former campaign manager, spoke uh, definitely adamant about the Democrats winning the House this year. A lot of optimism, but doesn't believe they've necessarily found their voice in the center left uh, segment of the country yet. Still thinks they need better consolidation around a single powerful message. Um, her take is that you're going to have four categories of, client, of uh, candidates with so Democratic uh, nomination for the presidency in 2020. She preferred to kind of the old-timers, meaning someone who's run before, uh, likely to run again. You could, of course, have Hillary Clinton run again, Bernie Sanders, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. She thinks that sort of represents one group, and that whether it's two of those three, or three of those three, or even just one, she does think one of those three or more will end up running. Then there'll be kind of the new school, a little bit uh, big-name people that are working hard to get their their name out there. You have your Elizabeth Warren. You have your Cory Booker. Uh, lately, this Gillibrand in New York is trying to make a name for herself. So someone in that school of uh, thought very likely to come out, kind of a newer hotshot person. Then a governor. There's a lot of uh, Democratic governors around the country uh, that may want a piece of this. She alluded to... Um, A few different states. I mean, Andrew Cuomo here in New York has been rumored to be running for years. And then the fourth category, and this is timely in lieu of all the buzz around Oprah Winfrey's speech at the Golden Globes and whatever, but a celebrity, some kind of a, is it Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook? Is it Oprah Winfrey herself? Is it, is it uh, 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 Schultz, the founder of Starbucks? Um, You know, there's a number of different possibilities there. So I think that, uh, that you're going to see something go down, and, and uh, it, you, that's going to be shocking. I think you're going to see uh, very likely a uh, Democratic candidate, or at least a Democratic primary. I don't know who end up winning, but I think you're going to see a Democratic candidate um, that will surprise people and, and a primary that will most definitely surprise people. Um, so we'll see how that all plays out. Well, I, I'm going to kind of wrap it up here. I've gone close to 45 minutes and, and, and you know, hopefully kept your attention to most of it. But bottom line I want to close with is on the possibility of markets in 2018 that uh, trade, I talked about how Bannon leaving is probably good in that regard. But, you know, President Trump still, I do actually think that this is an impulse that is very sincere for him, being more protectionist and isolationist about U.S. trade policy I myself am a very uh, open free trader, believe it's very important, open flow of capital and open flow of labor, open flow of goods and services um, is wealth creating. And and I think I borrow from the Adam Smith free market school of of anti-mercantilism in this regard. But uh, President Trump was very concerned about Japan's Progress in the 1980s and what he felt that meant as a as a uh, impediment to American economic progress. And he certainly has uh, uh, campaigned vehemently around the same idea that Mexico would NAFTA and of course, China uh, was doing a lot of the same. Um, So I think you're going to see that uh, there's going to be a need for President Trump to moderate on this. He has not done much by way of bite just a lot of bark in any of these issues. He has not labeled China a currency manipulator. He's still conversing with China as if they're a strategic partner and not an enemy of the United States. He uh, has not pulled us out of NAFTA, just talked about wanting more hearings and committees and meetings and things like that. They're renegotiating a lot of parts. So um, they're, they're, at the end of the day, if someone were to say what's the biggest threat from the political space into markets, I don't think it's the next tweet President Trump's going to send, which is largely, at this point, just numbed. The markets are numbed to it. Um, The tax reform side is is very positive. More than likely, the direction they would take with some sort of infrastructure bill would end up being positive for markets. Even if it wasn't good policy, which I could see a scenario where it may not be, I do think it would still probably be well-received by risk markets maybe not interest rates if it's real def- deficit uh, uh, problematic. but we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But yeah, I mean that those protectionist impulses from the president um, are are kind of the one thing that sort of linger out there and, and I just don't see it. I think that you've now had a president who has, I gotta think it's been a hundred times touted the stock market performance since he was elected by tweet and by uh, verbal, affirmation I just think this president um, is well aware that any shock and awe to trade treaties it risks unwinding some of the stock market gains and I don't think he's likely to do that so the political environment for 2018 going into the midterm elections is is reasonably safe the Mueller investigation lingers but we don't suspect any uh, major market impacting situation there let's take the worst case for president trump a sort of black swan that they have a smoking gun out there and president trump's in a whole lot of trouble even then if you're mr market you end up with mike pence as president i don't think that the market is afraid of a president pence with a republican congress and so forth so um, uncertainty is always the short-term enemy of markets meaning it can create a lot of volatility in a short period of time but Fundamentally, I, I think that really the Mueller investigation is not a major threat to markets. Um, I think that there's a lot of continuity you're going to get out of the Fed, uh, that, that Chairman Powell is going to look a lot like Chairwoman Yellen, who looked a lot like Chairman Bernanke, et cetera. You're going to have a very uh, accommodative monetary policy for quite some time. And then I think that um, the trade and protectionist side is likely to stay Again, potentially relevant rhetorically, but very irrelevant from a policy standpoint. So then that leaves markets to largely be driven by other forces, business cycle, um, and and, uh, so forth. Uh, So we'll talk more about that in next week's edition of the podcast. I'm going to give you next week our full 2018 projection. We're going to recap all of 2017. I'm going to make some outlandish predictions going into the new year. But that is the lay of the land I want to give you on the political environment, recapping some of the notes from yesterday and and sharing with you how we see a lot of this playing out. Let's say, by the way, then, that we get near the end of the year and, and the Democrats not only are going to win the House, but are going to take back the Senate. Would that have a market impact? I think that that's the type of thing we have to watch throughout the year. What Democrats look to win and what races and so forth and so on. So there's plenty for us to be evaluating uh, we're going to be you know, vigilantly on it. We always are, not only because we owe it to our clients and we think it's part of our fiduciary obligation to study these things and understand them, and to have a point of view. But we also are just junkies and can't help it. And so there you go. Hey, thanks for listening to this first issue of Advice and Insights, uh, the Bonson Group's brand new podcast. I'm David Bonson, your chief investment officer. I've enjoyed uh, talking with you those last few minutes reach out anytime. We'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast. We'd love for you to force your friends to do it. Take their phone and hit subscribe when they're not looking. Uh, Write a positive review, anything you want to do. But we want to do this for one reason, one reason only, and that is to provide our point of view in such a manner that it helps improve your thinking as an investor. Thanks for listening.
0: See you next week. Thank you for listening to our Advice and Insights podcast with David L. Bonson. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.